The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you will, turn in your copies of God's Word to Psalm 127. I have wanted to get to this text as our concluding study on sanctities of life in general, and of course the the sanctity of family and biblical parenting. I've wanted to get to this text For that reason, to finish up our series uh, that we had this last year on Sunday night. But I also wanted to get to it uh, because of the place that this psalm has, uh, in God's kindness, has been ordained to have in my life. And uh, so I am, um, in, in fact, I'm hoping and praying it will have that that dynamic in your life. There are, there are some Psalms that have just undergirded my life for which I am forever grateful. Um, in the days of adversity, I have loved to just be absorbed in Psalm 27. And in the days of challenge, I have loved to just revisit Psalm 46. But this Psalm that we're working through tonight, while with great application to the to biblical parenting, is a life it is a life stabilizing psalm. It is one that goes beyond parenting into every area of life because of the theology that it presents and the assurances that it makes and the promises that it portends. And therefore I want you to I want to walk through the psalm with you and then do some distillation with application in terms of parenting itself. But just the psalm in its in its content, in its um, its glory, its majesty. Uh, and how that is let me I've chosen my word carefully, life stabilizing. It is stabilizing to me to know that God has warned me and informed me that you can do nothing apart from me. Without him, I can do nothing. But it also transforms and stabilizes when I hear a corollary verse. And that corollary verse declares to me, I can do All things through Christ who strengthens me. Without him, I can do nothing. Oh, I can make every attempt in the world. I can plan my life. I can go get education. I can do this and do that and the other thing. But in terms of establishing that which is pleasing to God and that which which endures forever, I can do nothing. Not out of the strength of the flesh. The flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit who gives life. But I can do all things through Christ 
who strengthens me. Now, how does he strengthen us? Well, you know to make that jump right to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, don't you? That's how Christ from heaven strengthens us, is his spirit with his word provides strength to the sinews, provides power to the muscles, spiritual muscles. That's what I need in my life, and that's what I need to depend upon. I am so grateful for covenant vows that keep reminding me of this. Covenant vows that, in baptism vows, in humble reliance upon divine grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, I will endeavor. I will endeavor. But it's not, I will endeavor, and God, could you show up to bless my endeavor? No. It begins with humble reliance, with absolute dependence upon God's grace and God's spirit. Now, I will endeavor. I love it in our covenant membership vows. That in humble reliance upon divine grace, I will seek to live a life that honors my Savior. I love it in the ordination vows, in humble reliance upon divine grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. This psalm underscores for us a basic truth. It does so with, with, um, with penetrating negative statements, and it does so with powerful positive statements. So I want you to walk through it with me, and then I want to distill some observations from it, and then we can walk away with some applications. And here is this, um, and, and by the way, this is a, a unique psalm in that almost all of the psalms in your Bible are psalms of David. But the reality is this: there are some that are psalms from Solomon, and here is one. Here is one from a son of David, a psalm that Solomon has brought to us. And so we'll take a look at it. It's entitled, Unless the Lord Builds the House. Interesting, it's included in that section of psalms that are sung coming up the, uh, coming up to Mount Zion to go to the temple for worship. It's called a song of ascent. We try to picture that pattern of ascending to the praise of God, singing praise to him in our opening hymn each Sunday. You'll notice it says a hymn of ascent uh, into the presence of God. And these are glorious God-centered hymns. They're a place for psalms that focus upon our need, that focus upon our repentance, that focus upon our lament. But these are psalms, these are one of those psalms that focuses on the majesty and transcendence of God as we come to worship that God. And so now let's start with me. He starts two times saying the word unless. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. In other words, he is not saying that someone who is laboring to build a house doesn't end up with some kind of a house and structure. But that house built by our strength does not stand the purposes of God and does not stand for the purposes of eternity. That takes the Lord to build that house. A house that is a house of blessing instead of ending up as a house of vanity. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to be on the alert for, and that's that word vain. 
Now, when I read that from someone like someplace like the Psalms, that of course is a is part of that cadre of literature we call wisdom literature, you're immediately going to another wisdom book, and that's the book of Ecclesiastes, in which it is stating all is vanity. All is vanity and striving in the wind without the presence and power of God. That is exactly what Solomon is saying here. In other words, when you study Psalm 127, I believe you're studying a psalm, a song that was written by Solomon as a distillation of what he wrote in Ecclesiastes. And so here is, unless the Lord builds the house, then your building's vanity. Vanity, emptiness. It is, as I said, it's cotton candy, sugar-coated. Oh, there'll be an immediate sense of pleasure, just like cotton candy, when you, you know, when you put, you know, five tablespoons of air-blown sugar in your mouth, it's going to taste pretty good for a moment, but there's nothing to it. It's gone. It's empty. It's vain. You just, I mean, it was just sugar-coated air is what you got with cotton candy. And so that's what this labor, yeah, the house is there, you get the keys, you walk in, there's that moment of uh, of exhilaration, but that's what it is, a moment. There's nothing of, uh, there's nothing of endurance to it. There is nothing of eternality to it. There is nothing of gravitas to it. For it to have endurance, for it to have gravitas, for it to have eternal impact, that house that is being built, the Lord has to build it through the builders. It is the Lord who builds it. Otherwise, it is in vain. Then he brings this unless again, as he sets up an, a, um, a, as he sets up these negative statements that make us aware that our labor is vanity without the presence of the Lord. He brings a second one. He goes from a house being built to now the calling of a watchman on the wall. Unless the Lord watches over the city. The watchman stays awake in vain. Of course, you've got a great example of this in your Bible, don't you? In the very days where God had said, what? I'm going to set my people free. And one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to, uh, from their captivity in Babylon, it's going to be 70 years. But one of the things I'm going to do is the nations I use to discipline my people in captivity, as they take them into captivity, I'm going to bring discipline on them. And so while he brings his redemptive work into the life of Nebuchadnezzar, and he brings the witness of Daniel and his three companions to the Babylonian Empire, there comes a moment and a time in which the Babylonians feel the wrath of God, the temporal judgment of God, as they are dismissed by the Medo-Persians. And even in moments like this, There's revelry going on, as the book of Daniel tells us. Parties are going on. And everything, we are secure. Why? Look at the size of our army. Look at the fortress we have that we occupy. Here we stand. We can't be touched. We've got sentries. We've got watchmen. We've got power. We've got chariots. We've got horses. But then comes the statement that we use in our culture all the time. And that statement is, the handwriting's on the wall. Tonight, you will fall. 
even though you feel secure in everything you've done tonight. How many of us make that mistake? Now, folks, I am, listen, I'm going to be careful on this. If, if you want to hire a security guard, praise the Lord. That's, that's common sense if you need to. If you want to put, put a security system in, praise the Lord. But that's not your confidence. Your confidence is not in the, it is not in a person, not in technology, not in anything. It doesn't mean we don't make use of it. God's made us rational, not irrational. God's made us logical, not illogical. But our confidence is not in the mechanisms that exist or the individuals that exist. Our confidence is in the Lord. Notice again the language of vanity. Unless the Lord, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And I think most of you know this. If you serve in the army and you are made a sentry and you are given the night watch, if you fall asleep in almost every army, that is, that is a capital crime. You're put to death because you have now positioned your entire, all of your comrades and colleagues, you have positioned them for destruction by your lack of attention. And it is a declaration of having not done what you were called to do for the sake of others. Therefore, since you endangered their life, sentries who have fallen asleep historically are given that capital punishment. So watchman stays awake. They don't take a nap. They stay awake. But he's telling them, with all of your efforts, with all of your efforts to be alert, certainly appropriate. Certainly the Lord can use that. But what you're dependent upon is not your technology, not yourself, not your abilities. It is in the Lord himself. Our efforts are actually empty unless the Lord attends it with his blessings of common grace or redeeming grace in his providence. Well, then he switches from from vanity, uh, the warning of vanity without the presence of God and the power of God. He then switches from the negative uh, presentation to the positive in verse 2. It is vanity. It is vain that you rise up early. One of my favorite verses of, of the Bible right there. It is vain that you rise up early. I've got a, a friend um, that I used to pray with when I was in college, and he always loved to pray at 5 o'clock in the morning. And he says, early shall we seek the Lord. I remember him telling me that time and time again. And um, But I explained to him that the most beautiful part of the day is not the dawning, but the gloaming uh, in the evening. And that's the time that we need to meet with the Lord. But he never was convinced of that. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Now, we've just been given an insight. This is not should I get up early or should I sleep late. This is not, should I go to bed early or go to bed late? Although I will tell you what my mother said. Nothing good happens after 11 o'clock when I was growing up. And then I will tell you what my father said, which was every hour of sleep before 12 is worth two hours of sleep after 12. 
There were some amazing insights. I'm not sure where they are in the Bible. I think they're there somewhere. But here is a declaration that we've got a person that rises early, that goes to bed late, and that engages in life. And what is driving and sustaining this person? Why are they going to bed late? Why do they work and burn the midnight oil? Why do they get up early? Because they're eating the bread of anxiety and fear and worry. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Why are you doing that? Eating the bread of anxious toil. Your work is not out of joy to the Lord. Your work is out of the vanity that if I don't do it, then it can't be done. And I must depend on myself. In other words, this is the guy that goes to bed late because he's working late. This is the guy that gets up early and it is not, it is not out of joy. It is out of anxiety. This is the guy in his study that has the needle point. <clears throat> that horrendous needle point from the doctrine of demons. God helps those who help themselves. That is a doctrine of demons. And so here, in other words, God depends on us to do what we do, which allows him to do what he does. That does not lead to joy. That leads to anxiety. That leads to fear. And that leads to oppressive concerns. Now, brothers and sisters, listen, I, don't, I, I do not believe that uh, concern is sinful. The same Paul that says, do not fear, the same Paul who says, be anxious for nothing, is the same Paul that when writing tells us of his, quote, concerns for all the churches. So is there a place for God-informed concern that leads us to God-centered action in life? Yes. But where this man-made fears and man, um, I'm sorry, man-centered fears and man-made anxiety is based upon the notion that if I don't get it done, then God can't get it done. That it depends on me. I'm glad to have God as a coach. I'm glad to have God as a helper. Uh, in um, in the areas where my gaps are and my inabilities are, but it's really the reliance is upon me. Well, he says to that person, you who get up early because of your anxiety, you who go to bed late out of your anxiety, you who toil in life out of your anxiety. And then he makes this astonishing statement. He gives to his beloved even when they sleep. Now, most all of us have read the books that tell us, well, let me put it this way. Most of us have read the books that give us medical advice on the value of sleep. My mother believed in this. So whenever I got sick, uh, she would give me an aspirin or something and tell me to go to sleep. My wife uh, how many times um, when we were raising our children did they come into our bedroom, Mommy, they didn't go to me, they went to Mommy. 
Mommy, I'm sick. I don't feel good. My stomach's upset. I can tell you right now, the entire, uh, in their entire childhood, their entire adolescence, until they left and cleft, uh, I can tell you what my wife would say at that moment. Honey, go get a glass of water, take two aspirin, and go back to bed. You'll feel better in the morning. In other words, she believed that sleep was beneficial. Well, this text isn't talking about the fact that God made rest as a part of our life in terms of the, in terms of the rhythms of life. Don't you see it in a week? Six days you labor, and then you have what? You have a Sabbath in which you rest from your labors and rest to go into labor. So there is the gift of the Sabbath, the creation Sabbath for us. It's a part of life. And then God gets us into, God provides for us every day. We arise to do work for the Lord. And what do we do? We rest at night. And then we get up in the morning. We're not at night. We're not only resting we're not only resting during the night from from physical labor and mental labor and emotional labor. We're resting from metabolic uh, labor. That's why when we get up, the first meal is called what? This 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 isn't hard. What's the first meal called? Breakfast. Break fast. And that God has built feasting and fasting daily, weekly, into our lives. I, tonight, my wife was sharing with me her study that she's doing this year on the seven feasts that are found in the Old Testament for her women's ministry. And uh, these are this this whole rhythm of life is in place. But what is your perspective on it? Do I work? Yes. Do I rest? Yes. But here's what I know. When I am resting in the Lord, the Lord is never resting. He gives to his beloved not only well-being because sleep is therapeutic. He gives to his beloved providentially. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration. I have now been in four decades of ministry. You have no idea how many sermon outlines have come to me at night. While I'm sleeping. And I'm not talking about dreams. I don't know how it comes. It just comes. Now, I, it doesn't always come. Uh, and I don't certainly rest on that. I, it's not, okay, I need to prepare a sermon. Let me go to bed for the next uh, 48 hours. That's not the deal here. But how many times that God in his graciousness, something I'm working on, something I'm trying to deal with, then all of a sudden in the context... This happens so often, if you come to my house, you will see on the night table next to the bed where on the side that I sleep, a small pad with a pen, because I'll actually get up and write it down in the, uh, during the night when it comes to me. Our ideas, our thoughts, our clarity comes. So God not only, not only gives to us mentally, medically, emotionally, um, Uh, uh, um, um, physically, Uh, but he also gives to us intellectually even while we sleep. Now, is this a statement that is telling us, well, if you want to be effective in life, then sleep all the time? No, that's not it. This it is not, it is not, in other words, sleep is not being designed as a means of grace right here. 
It is a gift of grace, but it is not a means of grace. But what it is telling you is that the same God who works according to the ordained means of grace in ordinary affairs of life is not stopped by our sleep. He can actually give to his people. His providence has extraordinary as well as ordinary means in our life. And then, of course, uh, oh, I, I'm, excuse me, just one other thing, which is why as you look at the rhythm of life, Sabbath, work, rest, work, feast, uh, fast, feast, as you see these rhythms, you can engage in them under the sovereign hand of God, knowing that when you're doing the God-ordained rest on a Sabbath or in an evening, God's hand is not shortened. On the contrary, he does and is giving in those moments when you're resting by his design and when you're resting in him. Because when you're not resting and working, you actually are still resting in him. You're not depending on your toil, but on the one who works in you. You are working out with dependence on what he is working in. Well, then he moves from this to the matter of family. And then he goes to our children. Behold, children are a what? They're an inheritance. They're a heritage from the Lord. The womb is not an entitlement. The womb is in the providence of God. A reward Like, and what do children become when entrusted to us? That children who are a blessing from the Lord are raised to bless the Lord. So they become, and I'm sorry, but I'm going back to my language this morning. They become worshipers and warriors. They live, those who have been entrusted to us as a blessing from the Lord... They then are raised by us in the Lord, the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to build what? To bless the Lord and to what? To be a warrior, to be an arrow in the hands of the divine warrior. He goes on to say they are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. That's the children of our youth. Now, I don't want to overdo this. But the children of our youth. So my encouragement to back to parenting. This is a little bit of a distillation right now. My encouragement is, is you have your children while you're young. I can give you many reasons for that. One is the gift of idealism. And one is the presence of energy that you desperately need with children. I mean, they are born, I mean, well, I'm just not going to give my child sugar. Listen, my children made sugar. I don't understand where all their energy came from. It was just everywhere. So you need the energy in parenting, and that's one of the blessings of grandparenting. I don't need energy. I just turn them over, and then I kind of show up when I can have fun with them. Uh, Just like last Saturday, I had fun with one of my grandchildren, and as we spent time together, and we went over to 
Napco, and we both got our frozen coffee, and I showed her how to sweeten it up, and it's even better. As we spent that time together, I then dropped her off with her mother and said, y'all have a great day. I had a great time with her. That's one of the blessings of grandparenting. That's something I need to do because I can't keep up with her all day. And so I don't have to keep up with her all day. Uh, But as a parent, you do. So they are the children of your youth. And we need some um, some rationality in this matter of childbearing. So like Aaron, but we raise them as worshipers who are blessings from the Lord to bless the Lord and as warriors as arrows in the hand of the divine warrior. And that is Christ himself. Blessed is the man. Now watch. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Now again, I don't want to overdo this. I had a, I literally got a letter not long ago. I preached on this in Charlotte and I made the comment that when, if, if, if you had, if you were a soldier in the Civil War and you went into battle, they would either put, they depended on what they thought the battle was going to be. You either carried 45 cartridges into battle or 60 cartridges into battle. And the commander would tell you. And that would be a full cartridge box, either 45 or 60. Well, when an Israeli went into battle with his bow and his quiver, a full quiver was considered five arrows. I made that comment and a, la- uh, a lady wrote me recently to give me an update on her, on the children that I baptized. And she said, Pastor, you'll notice in the letter uh, that our children are doing well and we give God all the praise and all the glory. Our last one just went off to college and, um, so, and, but, and is walking with the Lord. I said, well, and I was thinking, praise the Lord. Then the next statement, you may wonder why we had five. Well, you said that we are to, that a full quiver was five, so we felt it was our duty to have five. That is not what this text is saying. God will determine your full quiver or whether this quiver will not have the arrows, but he wants you to use your ability to help others in the context of life or to help others um, as, um, as they shift from one quiver to the other biologically and through adoption. But, the, but what he is saying is if God, any child that God has used and put into the quiver of your life, then uh, that God has brought to you in life, then you are a blessed man. Man. It's not, you're not blessed if it's an entitlement. You are blessed if God chose to do it or what God is choosing to do with you and in the context of your family. Now folks, that begs for a lot more treatment than I've got tonight. But, uh, but here's, here's what I would say. I would just make this warning. We can make children into idolatry if we have them and we can make children into idolatry if we don't have them. What we have to do is seek contentment in the Lord and then the ability to follow the Lord. And I know these are challenging statements, but, but what I need to know is I don't have children because they take the place of the Lord. And I do not diminish my trust in the Lord if I don't have the children that I want from the Lord. I must fix my heart and my mind upon the Lord. 
And whenever we find ourselves, for those of us who might make our children idols, and instead of a blessing from the Lord, we actually turn them into a curse because we put them in place of the Lord. We need brothers and sisters who will surround us and throw the flag to challenge us. But if we, uh, if we are desiring of children or more children and it's not there in the providence of God, then we need those around us who will embrace us and love us and walk us through it while warning us of the pitfalls of idolatry without children, just like there are the pitfalls of idolatry with children. That's what I love about Christ's church. If we are one in Christ, that we are able to help one another in either situation before the Lord. So he says, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now, what is the end result? The end result is the parents, the parents are not put to shame even by his enemies when he speaks with them in the gate. One of the things I love to do is to take people to certain ancient towns and show them the gates of the city. That was like today we call it the courthouse. We would say, well, here's where the city government is, here's city hall, and here's the courthouse. That was all right there in the gates of the city. There would be the place for the magistrates and the kings to sit. There would be place for holding court. There would be place for debates. There would be place for assembly. All of those things would take place in the gates of the city. And when... Um, when someone goes to the gates of the city, as they arrive, their children become an occasion of them being honored. Even their enemies have to affirm the hand of the Lord upon their children. Which, by the way, on the reverse side of it, is saying what about children? That children are to live and honor their father and mother. So children that honor their father and mother, and, and can I just retreat to this again? If we are making our children an idol, they will never honor you because they can't honor you by taking the place of the Lord in your life. That's why it is important that we have a God-centered home, not a parent-centered, not a child-centered, but a God-centered home. In a God-centered home, parents are able to, uh, parents are honored by children who are raised in the Lord, not who take the place of the Lord. And then the parents are able to turn that honor as a witness to the Lord, even in the gates, even in the presence of their enemies. Well, just a couple of thoughts uh, that I want to bring some distillation to you. So can I just give you these, uh, having walked you through the text itself? You might want to jot some of these down. Here's the first thing. Our efforts, our efforts, apart from God's sovereign grace, and what I mean by that is his presence and his power in our life. Our efforts... Our efforts apart from God's sovereign grace through his presence and his power will always be futile. We may exercise our lives, but it will be an exercise in futility if the Lord 
is not at the foundation of our life. And we are in humble reliance and dependence upon his presence and his power. Without you, Lord, I'll do a lot, but I do nothing. But I can do for your glory. And in that I take joy. Folks, in in our lives, in our work, in our workplace and in our work, there's a word that's out there that some of us look with at disdain in our society now. It's the word professional. In fact, a colleague of mine wrote a book about ministers and said and declared that ministers are not professionals. Well, I know what he's getting at, so I'm not picking at it. And I think there's some great insights. But I believe that every Christian, as they live life in the marketplace, in the home and in the church, what we do, we do as professionals. Now, Harry, why would you say that? Because that word has its root in the Reformation. And in the Reformation, there was a liberation that the only people that count in the kingdom are the clergy, the ordained. And Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and others labored to declare that whenever you live your life to the Lord and independence upon the Lord, that becomes a profession of faith. And that's the root of professional. We do what we do well for the Lord, independence upon the Lord. And the excellence is not for the metrics of more money. Certainly, employers are free to reward that. But we do it under the eye of God. And our joy in the labors of life, parenting, marketplace, employment, ministry, in the labors of life, our joy is to show our faith that our God is able and we are not. That becomes the true definition of professional. Maybe I just might, he makes the point, the home builder uh, or the housemaker, the watchman, uh, all of these statements, the worker is that the overworker, uh, all of these things are in futility if in fact you and I are not living in dependence unto the Lord and unto the Lord. The Lord is our strength, not our efforts. Our efforts in the arenas of life Here's another way to say it. Our efforts in the arena of life are an exercise of futility apart from the presence, apart from the presence and power of the Almighty in our life by grace secured through Christ our Lord. We are not partially dependent upon Him. We are absolutely dependent upon Him. We are dependent upon His presence and His power. God's presence and God's power and the sovereignty of God here. God's presence, God's power, God's purposes. They are present in our life and our efforts are dependent upon them, upon His presence and power and purpose. He is not dependent upon us. 
He can give to us even while we sleep. He has extraordinary abilities. He can work ordinarily or extraordinarily. So we are dependent upon his presence and power and purpose. But he is not dependent upon us. None of us are irreplaceable. None of us are indispensable. But he, dare I quote the song we sing, he is indispensable and indescribable. The sovereign gifts of grace to us and for us is not dependent upon us. The sovereign gifts and grace from God through Christ to us and for us is not dependent upon us. Let me give you another way or another distillation. Our efforts in life, our life efforts, must be intentionally engaged with absolute and humble reliance upon the presence and power of the Lord. In fact, let me add something. I should have said this. Our life efforts must be intentionally in life. All of our life efforts, our engagements in life, parenting, work, uh, ministry, everything that we do, our life efforts that we engage in life must be, must be embraced with absolute humble reliance upon the presence and power and purposes of God. Listen, God spoke and brought everything into existence. He doesn't need me to get his purposes done. I need him. Does that make me a fatalist? No, because I know he ordinarily works through means. Does that make me, um, does that make me, uh, does that make me lazy in life? No. But what it does do is it brings humility in life. I don't know who to give credit to this. I can only tell you I didn't come up with it, but I love it. Most of us think humility in life is thinking less of ourselves. That's what we think humility in life is. Humility is to think less of myself. Actually, humility is to think of self, is to think less about ourselves and more about him. It's not thinking less of myself. It's thinking less of myself and more about him. It's not about me. It's about him. And that's where I find my effectiveness and my joy when it becomes about him. That's the process the psalmist is bringing us to think our way through. In other words, we have a God who works with us and in us and through us. We call that synergism. But we also have a God who works over us and without us and sometimes in spite of us. And that's what we depend upon in his glorious, his glorious work. 
Now, if I could speak this and let's download it in terms of children and parenting. Let me just give you these five observations from the text. First of all, children are not a burden. Children are not a burden. To be, children are not a burden to be endured. Is parenting burdensome sometimes? Yes. Yes. So cast them on Jesus. All your burdens. But the children are not a burden. Parenting may be burdensome, particularly if we're trying to do it without the Lord. But children are not a burden to be endured. They are a divine blessing to be stewarded. They are a divine blessing to be stewarded. Secondly, children, I've already referred to this, as a blessing are not to become an object of worship. Children are not to be an object of worship. How many of us are laying the seeds of destruction in the lives of our children when we make them into idols or when we make them into idols by trying to relive our lives through them instead of raising them for life in Christ? Children are not to be an object of worship, but children are to be an occasion of calling to worship. Children are not to be an object of worship, but they do become an occasion and a calling to worship to praise God from whom all blessings flow. Children are a blessing. Therefore, they're an occasion for us to worship God, not an object to take the place of God in the worship of life. Thirdly, thirdly, children are to be raised in and for the Lord as worshipers of him and warriors for him. Our children are to be raised in and for the Lord as worshipers of him and warriors for him. Number four, if we find our place in the precarious position of childlessness. Just by the way, having children can be a precarious position if it becomes an occasion for idolatry. But if we're in the precarious position of childlessness, of childlessness, we need to seek the Lord. We need to seek contentment in the Lord, and we need the people of the Lord around us, to surround us. We need the means of grace to wash over us, and we need to consider what is God's purpose in this? What is God doing in this? What is God doing in me? What does God want to do through me in this? And he will be my strength. Finally, children, children um, who are children who are gifts from the Lord and who are um, who are 
who are prepared for the Lord by the strength of the Lord. When they serve the Lord, will honor their father and their mother. And when in the Lord they honor their father and their mother, then their father and mother will be honored in the gates and then be able to honor the Lord from whom all blessings flow and say, it is the Lord who has done this. (laughs) My parenting would have been vanity without him. So the honor you see from my children to me and us, the honor we receive from you because of their honor of us and their lives in the Lord and for the Lord, it's of the Lord. So now in the gates, we will take the occasion of parenting, not to receive accolades, but to point others to the Lord from whom all blessings flow. Because of his sovereign grace, presence, power, and purposes. Father, thank you for the moments we've been able to spend together tonight in your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer. Uh, Father, um, I just simply want to ask you to please allow us in the discipleship of believers to disciple believers to establish God-centered, God-reliant, God-exalting homes through God-reliant, God-empowered parenting. Would you please grant that to us? I sense that even in the midst of a cultural death spiral, we haven't awakened to to the truth of our precarious position as men and women of Christ and for Christ, and as parents in this world. So would you awaken us, and would you equip us, and would you enable us to stay the course, exalt Christ, equip your people, and evangelize the lost, declaring our God who brings us into his family through being born again and by being adopted, is ready to work in our families that men and women might see the grace of the Lord Jesus in homes that are different from the disassembled homes of the the world that surrounds us. So, Father, build homes. May I pray with the prophet. Do your work of grace and turn the hearts of fathers along with mothers. Turn their hearts to their homes. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader. Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org.
or call 205-776-5200.